Hello, my name is Mark Taylor. Welcome back to the National Association for Primary Education podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Ian Gilbert. And Ian is a patron of NAEP. Um, and we've worked through a few of the people that have been involved. And it's great to get some insights from the people that are supporting the organisation and the kind of the breadth and the ideas of, of their kind of thinking. So Ian, thank you so much for being here. That's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with um, your association with NAEP? And we had a quick conversation before we started recording about some of the people that you know and, and, and you've been involved in. So give us a little bit of that sort of history. Yeah, I mean, it goes back quite a long way, really. And, and um, to, you know, to be involved with people who were helping sort of run NAEP and set NAEP up. And, and I was just asked to be a patron. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, why not? I'm a, I'm a huge fan of anything that is encouraging and supporting the innovatives that we find in primary education in this country. And I say that because I'm also aware that the innovations and the bravery and the courage and the creativity, from my perspective, without upsetting any secondary people who might possibly be listening, but but that that excitement is coming through from primary more than it is in secondary. I think secondary, certainly in England, are, are running a whole lot more scared of the, uh, the, the those above them, shall we say, uh, okay. whereas primary, I've, I've, I've what I'm what I'm noticing in primary, and especially since you know in the last year. Uh, since lockdown, since all that's been going on in the pandemic, is is increasingly primary heads going, eh, sod it, we're, we're just going to do it. We're, we're not going to, we're no longer going to wait to be told what to do or worry about doing the wrong thing. We just, we know what's right. We're just going to get on with it. And and I, I just love that. So anything that supports that risk taking, that brave leadership, and the creativity in the classroom, and the focus on well being, um, I'm 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 up for. So tell us a little bit about independent thinking and kind of, I mean. We're talking about this, like you said, in terms of the recent year having gone by with the pandemic and everything, but it's not something new to you in terms of, <laughs> of, of, of what it is that you've been talking about and, and obviously interested in. So sort of take us back through that journey in terms of when it started and the yeah. journey up to now. Yeah, no, the pandemic has, has played into our hands nicely in terms of creativity and breaking the rules and things. Independent Thinking is a company I set up um, twenty, getting on for 28 years ago, 28 years next month, I think it is. Um, I was a teacher in Northamptonshire. Uh, I was a French teacher, but I'd gone into teaching because what I really wanted to do was to work with young people, primarily around philosophy for children, P for C, uh, but also around thinking skills and memory strategies and mind mapping and just the, the the sorts of information that I wished I'd known as well when I was a young person going to school in in Leicestershire. Um, sort of stuff around motivation, motivational strategies and goal setting and. I realised that I was a success of this of the education system, but there was I suddenly realised there was all this other stuff that I wished I'd been told when I was at school. So I wanted to go back into school and and work with young people and mess with their heads in that way. And, and being a French teacher, I had a French degree, so being a French teacher was was a it was like a guaranteed job. My mother-in-law at the time was telling me, "Well, you know, you've you've got a degree, but you're not a doctor or a plumber. You have, you know, you've, you've got nothing to fall back on." So the French degree meant I could do a PGCE in French uh, at uh, Leicester University and then um, was teaching in Northampton. But even in my, my NQT year, running all these extracurricular classes, lunch times, and we'd had sort of thinking skills holidays as well, just just working with young people and getting them to, to think, really. So that was the stuff. And, and while I was there, a colleague in the classroom, in the staff room, um, it turned out her husband had sold his business, engineering business, and they had a bit of money to invest. And they liked what I was doing in terms of sort of the motivation and the thinking skills with kids. And they said, we would like to lend you £20,000 to, to, if you want, as a stepping stone so you can sort of leave full-time teaching 
um, and set up as a limited company. I never thought of being a limited company before. I just wanted to sort of, you know, focus on the thinking skills. So that was the starting point, really. And with the support of, of um, uh, they were called, well, Sue Chamberlain was the, the teacher and her husband, Paul. They've both since passed on, sadly. Uh, but that was the starting point. And, and this idea that you've, you, you, you trust somebody, you give somebody a break, you give somebody an opportunity and um, and you don't know where it leads. It's not about making loads of money because they didn't make loads of money. I paid them back and they, they did okay, but it wasn't about that. It was, you, you know, you find somebody who has potential and you give them an opportunity. And in many ways, what independent thinking is has become over these years it is this chance to give people an opportunity who when you see potential. So what we are now, independent thinking, it moved from being me running around the country doing motivational stuff with kids and teaching and learning, uh, sorry, learning strategies. And then I was asked to go and, um, you know, th that stuff you do with the, with, with, the, with the students, can you come and do it with the staff? And that terrified me because I never set myself up to work with staff. And, uh, but that seemed to go down okay. And then they were saying, well, that, those things you do with the staff and the students, can you come and do it with the, at the head teachers conferences and the keynotes? And that terrified me as well because I, I didn't know anything about school leadership. But it, but it seemed to they, it seemed to resonate the stuff that I was saying, and, and then it's in this world you sort of attract people towards you who are in keeping with your beliefs and values, um, and and what's what happened over the years I sort of just I, I've become a like a curator of interesting educators, just mm -hmm. wonderful people from all around the country who are doing amazing stuff in education, whether they're school leaders, whether they're teachers, whether they're primary, secondary, special. Uh, some people have, have got an acting background. Some people have got a medical background. Just, But all people who have firmly put the child at the centre of the education process, which is why I'm happy to support NAEP. You put the child at the centre and then sort of spread out from from there. So so my job has been with independent thinking. It's, just, it, we're, it's a platform. It's it's a showcase of these, this amazing talent. And we give them the opportunity then to, to speak, to do inset, to do conferences and keynotes, to write books, because we have the independent thinking press as well. Um, uh, and now increasingly in this last year, to do webinars, to do uh, um, uh, training sessions on, not online, to do recorded sessions. Um, so uh, yeah, a, a curator of interesting educators is what I do, I suppose. There's, the, there's a, a fairly long version, but it's you know moderately cut. And one thing I'm, I'm always interested in is the fact that if you know if we could snap our fingers and we can have that child-centered version of education with all the sorts of things that you talk about tomorrow then that would be fantastic but of course we are sort of bound into the the national curriculums and and all of that kind of thing have you found that it's the thinking's been different since sort of the mid 90s all the way through in terms of the people coming into the profession for example like teachers and that kind of thing or has it been broadly the same what's your experience with that there's been a journey so when independent thinking started so if you think 28 years ago and it was all the focus on the national curriculum and all these in, in primary schools especially all these folders that were coming out and and then it started to move gradually towards this idea of things like personalized learning and thinking skills you know some of the mick water stuff coming out the qca um the focus on uh social and emotional aspects of learning so that it was sort of moving in that direction, and then suddenly we had the change of the, the change of ownership at the top. One of the first things that Nick Gibb, when he came along and, and got rid of, was the social emotional aspects of learning, and this was the thing that the consultant paediatric neurolog neurologist Dr. Andrew Curran, who's one of our associates, has said was one of the most important things to hit education, primary education, for about forty years. And I, 
and I still talk about this to teachers and head teachers now, and I'm saying, you know, we have to make a call whether we follow the word of a consultant paediatric neurologist or a um, grammar school educated chartered accountant when it comes to the best form of education. And and I know teachers and head teachers have pressures on them at primary at primary level with SATs and with Ofsted and all of that. It's incredible pressure. But it keeps coming back to the, the the phrase that I've used for years now is the idea that you know we cover our back we cover our backs and we sleep at night that we do things in such a way that we can make them happy and keep them keep them at bay keep the hounds at bay but do it in such a way that we feel our conscience is is fairly clear and I think when we what I've noticed with primary head teachers is well all head teachers when we when we stray away from our values and start doing the things that we don't believe in but feel we have to. Um, that it's 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 not good for mental health and 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 sleep, and our and our well being, and I don't say that lightly because I, what I also see is and this is one of the powerful positions that I'm in with independent thinking is to have examples of people who are doing it, and doing it well who are who do hit those sorts of buttons. So, you know, one of our associates, Julie Reese, is a primary head teacher in in the, uh, sort of Gloucestershire. So a lot of rural poverty impacting on her school, but it's a values-based education school. She's written a book for us, the Little Book of Values, a few years ago, and it is just the most beautiful school. It's a it's a moving event to go and see her school. Um, so she's doing it. It's challenging, but she's doing it. She's getting the values right. She's getting the education right. She's doing it from a position of heart. She she they they do things like philosophy for children. They do peer massage. They have forest school. She has a a school dog. She does so many things that really support children who are coming from some quite challenging, um, you know, issues around rural uh, around rural poverty. Uh, and she talks about and she's going to do another book for us, hopefully, stressless stressless headship. Just how actually it's she she can do it in such a way that it's calm and it's cool and it's collected. She has the, the golden rule in her school is um, no shouting. You don't shout ever. You don't shout at children. So when I talk to other primary schools and heads and teachers, I can say, look, you know, I'm not advocating for you to do something that is impossible. I'm saying here's somebody who's doing it in her way. You don't have to copy, but here's somebody who's doing it in her way. So I, I have within independent thinking these these sort of lighthouse associates, if you like, the ones that I can navigate by, and that might be Julie on values education. It might be at secondary level, Vic Goddard, a, a secondary head teacher. It might be Dave Whitaker doing his work around special schools, all talking about things like kindness and unconditional positive regard and getting the values right and getting the children right. And from so primary, secondary and special, working in all sorts of challenging environments, but but doing it right. So I can I can put my hand on my heart and say, look, here are people who are getting what we feel, getting it right and doing it in a way that I'm sure you feel is the right way as well. So don't, you know, courage. <laughs> it can be done. There are ways of doing it. There's another guy um, who's a deputy in a inner city primary school, Jonathan Lear, who wrote uh, well, one of his books is about the guerrilla curriculum. And it's just the most creative curriculum you could possibly envisage um, with all sorts of things around things like peer critique, mentoring, um, again, philosophy for children, big questions. Um, in an inner city Sheffield primary school, so he hits the buttons with regard Ofsted. Yeah, happy with it. The SATS results are great, but he's not doing it for Ofsted or the SATS results. He's doing it because it's the right curriculum to have. Um, and one of the things he said is that if we were doing webinars, we had a whole series of webinars over the last year. A whole series of webinars over the last year. One particular week, which I think was the end of May last year, we called What Now Week. We did about twenty. 
I lost, lost track, about 23, 24 webinars. They're all on the Independent Thinking website, independentthinking.com, under resources, you find them there. Um, looking at what now in education and what next for education. So what do we do immediately going back after the first lockdown? And then where might edu- how, what can we learn from this awful time to move education forward? And one of the things Jonathan was saying there, which really struck me, and I, and I got him to repeat it in a webinar we did recently on creativity in the curriculum. And it was this, if you had to change your, your curriculum for, for the pandemic, it, it was the wrong curriculum to begin with. This idea that, oh, well, we, 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 we must go back and start putting children's well-being first at the heart of the curriculum. Well, why, why wasn't it there before? Or we must look at creativity and resilience and, and, and a bit more independence in their learning. Well, why, why weren't you doing that before? Because they're good things. They're not, there's, 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 there isn't anything that I've noticed that in terms of the changes forced upon schools through the, through the pandemic that are worth going back from. <laughs> Independent learning, remote learning, use of technology, um, seeing a school as something more than just a building with classrooms and you have to be in those classrooms in order to learn. Um, you know, outdoors learning, um, uh, talking about important things, talking about well-being, talking about life and death. I mean, one of our books, um, Independent, it started off as a little book of bereavement and, and we sort of updated it to the little book of um, to um, Independent Thinking on Loss based on the experiences of my children when they lost their mum a few years ago in primary, secondary and and tertiary education. So we know these things are important. Um, ACEs, you know, the the, um, alternative adverse childhood experiences. We know these things are there, they're important. And there are schools in the UK uh, and around the world who are addressing these sorts of things. So, So there's no excuse to to go back really to a curriculum that doesn't focus on the things that we feel are, are, are significantly important. So it, it's as when I said earlier, you know, it sort of played into our hands. That's not meant to be too cynical. It, it has encouraged schools to, to, to really think actually these things are important. And yeah, the, the government wasn't the English government weren't telling us to focus on them before they actually got rid of them, but they are important. My heart tells us they're important. The evidence now tells us they're important. The children respond to it because it's important. So we'll, we'll just carry on with it because it's the right thing to do. And it really does sort of bring into, into focus that idea of, you know, what is the school there for? You know, is it about, like you said, you know, the whole child? Is it about giving opportunities to children that may not get it if they weren't in school? As opposed to we're just making sure, like you said, we're doing the stats, we're ticking the boxes, we're doing what the government has asked. As you quite rightly said, anyone who's actually involved in a school knows that's not why we're there. And it's not what we need as teachers and, and leaders. And it's certainly not what children need. You know, it, we're, we're, you know, we're enabling them to grow and thrive. And we're hopefully given the environment. And like I said, what this last year has done is hopefully given us the chance to feel like we can breathe out of the four walls of the classroom in order to be able to, 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 to feel like we're doing that. Yeah. Um, but just one thing I wanted to pick up on, which I, I find fascinating is, because of all the experience and the the situations that you've encountered, is it very black and white? You have these heads or these schools which are just thriving because of that mentality and that mindset of what they want it to be, and those that feel constrained and don't know how to go. and And how do you sort of transition between the two? Because I guess there'll be people listening, whether they're in senior leadership or a teacher, that says, "I this is what I want. This is how I want to get it." But that's not what my school looks like now. How does that? 
transition work and how do you sort of get from one to the other and and yeah and everything in between i guess <laughs> we've talked for a long time now with independent thinking about two things that we feel will transform education that's brave heads and lazy teachers and we've had books there's the, the lazy teachers handbook by jim smith which is his secondary secondary head now um but it's it works at primary and secondary level this idea about how can we get young people to do more of the work and more of the effort um, another of our associates, Mark Creasy, who is a primary teacher, is year two, I think now. A lot of his work, he wrote the book Unhome, Unhomework, about how so much homework is just not only a waste of time, it can be quite destructive, but it can be done differently if you have a more sort of project-based approach. And so much of his work is about getting the, the children to do more, whether it's thing, things like marking. You know, he will spend a bit of time with the class beginning of the year when he sees them to help them understand mark schemes and rubrics and critique and peer critique and understand it and and then they do the marking and he says most of his marking involves walking around during the lesson and just writing i agree on their on their books he doesn't take stuff home he doesn't work weekends on that on that sort of thing so it's so the lazy teaching is they're changing the the the, the mindset from what am i going to be doing as a teacher all lesson to how can i set things up in such a way that they do so much more of the the stuff that I was doing, starting the lesson, ending the lesson, leading the lesson, feedback, marking, all of those sorts of things children can do and benefit in the doing of it. Um, I've, I've been privileged enough to have worked in and lived and worked in various parts of the world, including Asia. And I did some work in Singapore. And, and for a while now in Singapore, the Ministry of Education, their motto has been teach less, learn more. This idea that children will thrive by not being taught in that direct manner which which teaches them dependence and teaches them um uh that if they don't know what to do they they sort of raise their hand or and, or they, they they learn the game of guess what's in the teacher's head so this focus on direct transmission teaching that we have in england especially in the secondary school now is is goes counter to what we've believed that actually like, i want children to sort of think for themselves so the lazy teaching the teach less learn more sort of feeds into that and feeds into that that nicely and and again with Jonathan Lear school for example you see that it's not about him leading there's a time to lead from the front there's a time to directly transmit but that's not the whole um the, the whole purpose of it and, and there's a lot of talk about Barrett Rosenshine's principles of instruction and and they're fine and they're valid but uh, you know I would say the schools don't don't start there and don't end there they're just a, a, a small section of the wider understanding of education and 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 that wider understanding of education then feeds into the brave heads bit. So in, in answer to your question, what I'm seeing is that the brave heads, the ones who are prepared to take risks, the ones who care a little bit less, the ones who say, okay, if they don't like it, colleagues, they, like I said, you know, Ofsted, the Daily Mail, the parents, whatever, I, I'll sort them out. But colleagues, we will teach in the way that we think is the right thing for our children. Not blindly, you know, we're, we're professionals. We'll we constantly feedback, constantly iterate, constantly innovate, but um, we're not going to be scared to do it in a particular sort of way because that's what uh, Nick Gibb insists, or that's what Ofsted's is, is latest thing is, and and they have a deeper and more thoughtful philosophy of education. Is what I found the head teachers in that situation, quite often at primary level, quite often and not exclusively, but quite often they're female. And quite often they're of a certain age where they're just going, you know, who cares? They they need me more than I need them. Um, and this is what we're going to do. So there are some fantastic female head teachers who are just being really innovative and 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 brave and 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 <laughs> reckless in a good way 
with uh with with their curriculum um i've taught i taught creativity it's one of the first things i taught going back to you know when i started after i left uh full-time french teaching i taught creativity to all sorts of people including prisoners in a maximum security prison in uh, in leicestershire and and it's and it's easy to get people to be creative lots of little tools you can use to show people how creative they are and then i, I only realized recently actually there's a there's there's a word we there's something we need to do before we get to be creative and the word is refusal. We have to refuse to do it the way we've always done it, the way that everybody else does it, the way that is the obvious way, the way that is the easy way, the way that is the recommended way. We don't know where we're going to go, but we just got to say, stop, I'm not going to do it that way. Now, let's see. That's At that point of refusal is where the creativity can start to be unleashed. We have a phrase in independent thinking which helps with our creativity, which is you do things no one does or you do things everyone does in a way no one does. So it's just, I'm not going to just be a training company or a speaker's bureau or a consultancy. I'm not, we're, we're sort of all of those things, but we're none of those things as well. We're, we're, we're ourselves, we're independent thinking. We do, we do it the way that we want to do it. So that's that sense of refusal. And that's what I see in the, in the head teachers who are leading in that innovative sort of way. I see that sense of refusal. And that's why I talk about, you know, the recklessness with the curriculum, but in a, in a in a thoughtful managed way and it's not not all females just happens to be a lot of females one of the things in conversations that i've had with with primary head teachers is is a sense that some of the younger primary head teachers coming through haven't had the chance to explore that philosophy of education haven't quite had that grounding in why they're doing what they're doing and in the absence of that for whatever reason what happens is well is it a good school? Yes, it's a good school because look at the SAT results or look at what Ofstadters say or have we got a banner outside the gate? So in the, in the absence of a conversation about what education really is for, we end up saying it's, it's it, well, we measure it by, by the grades and by the results. And then we end up as with managers delivering the school that Nick Gibb, Gove or whoever thinks a primary school should look like in order to, and I'm sure they just see primary school basically as a, as a training ground for secondary school to get the, to get the, get the results there. Um, and certainly the idea of testing them at, you know, four year old, five year olds, it's all about the data. It's all about the results. The market needs data. The market needs that information. If we don't, if we can't measure something, how can we improve it? Which goes all the way back to, I think Michael Barber working with um, Blair, you know, you can only, you can only improve what you can measure. So we've got to measure everything. And, but obviously there are certain things we're not measuring like well-being and happiness and, um, and ultimately as well for a school, it's, I wrote a, 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 a before the world of blogs. I wrote an article for um, it's now SSAT. It was SHAR, Secondary Heads Association, years ago, and describing measuring a school by its results is like measuring a, a, an arrow leaving a bow and deciding whether the arch is any good. You don't know where it's going to end up, but oh yes, it's a good archer because it left really well. So it's 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 all us about face the way that we assess a school and measure a school. Let's let's see where the the students who left where they are in 10 years time are they healthy are they alive are they happy are they contributing are they fulfilled that then we'll know um you know whether it was a successful school or not so it's 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 the teachers who are and the head teachers of school is who are taking back control of the mission and the great educational project and they're the ones that we seek to empower in independent thinking through my work through the work of the associates through the books so much of it is about it's that sense of permission. It's okay to think that way because look, here is another school doing it. Here's another head teacher doing it. So 
you know, power to your elbow, go, go for it. it it'll be okay. It was not going to be easy, um, but it'll be okay. And it's the right thing to do. And you will sleep at night. Yeah. And I think it is that passion, isn't it? It is that culture. And, um, and I think you're right. It's something which has come up before the kind of sort of younger heads coming into those positions is they, they've not experienced some of that from other people or like say the training and, and, and the path now from point A to point B can be quite swift and looks a certain way, which may only be sort of two dimensional as opposed to that kind of breadth that, that, that we've been talking about. Um, and, and that's what I, I love about what you're doing is that the sense of, you know, we're not talking about what you could do. We're talking about what is being done and you can find your way of doing that. And and I think that's really important. And I, th- I think the bravery thing is, is really fascinating because one of the things I remember, certainly as my children were going through school, is the fact they don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to ask too many questions. They want to fit in. They want to do it right. And of course, the only way that changes for them, I think, is to actually see that in action. And I think what you're talking about is the perfect way of doing that. You know, that being brave as a head, being brave as a school to actually create the environment you want. I mean, that's got to feed through to everybody that's involved. Yeah. And, and I'm privileged as well because of, I mentioned having lived in various parts of the world. So um, independent think is UK based, um, but I lived and worked in uh, the Middle East for a while and in South America in Chile. My wife's originally from Chile, so we were there for a while. And then she got a job as a vice principal in Hong Kong. So we were there for four years. Um, she's now a principal in Rotterdam. Uh, although we haven't been back to Rotterdam because of lockdown regulations and everything for a while. She's hopefully going, but she's been yeah, running running a Rotterdam international school from Wales at the moment. Um, but it's given me that the privileged position, a unique position, if you like, of seeing education, state and international independent schools all around the world. So, it, so when, again, the likes of Nick Gibb, uh, and others can say, "Oh, yeah, I've been to Singapore, or go, I've been to Singapore. We we need we should do it like this." And and then I can go to Singapore or Hong Kong or Shanghai and actually say, "Well, actually, it's not quite how they described it. It's not all about teacher from the front. There's 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 there are other things here that they they were a bit selective in how they fed back that this is what good teaching or good maths teaching looks like. And also, well, what about the tutoring? So any country that's got a private and public model." Uh, and where there's competition, there will be tutoring because that's what parents will will pay for. So I remember being in Chile, and and you know my, my daughters weren't were struggling a little bit in this pretty awful international school because the teaching was just so dire. Just direct transmission was all that was it. And whenever I said you know my girls aren't learning anything, the teacher would say, well I've I've taught them, so you know not my problem. Um, you know get a tutor. Here's a card. You know it happens to be my daughter. She's very good. And you know true true story. So any understand, and, and in Hong Kong, the tutors are, they're rock, rock stars. They are, they are millionaires at a young age. Their faces are plastered over the buses and the metro. And um, you pay an awful lot of money. If you've got the money, you will pay an awful lot of money to have your child you know, being tutored in order to get the best possible grades, in order to get into the, into the right universities and give them that edge in this competitive system. So, so this idea that we're, you know, a PISA is comparing state education systems is, is that, that there is a, fl- a fly in the ointment there because there isn't as much tutoring going on in the UK, uh, a bit more if you've got a grammar school situation in England or Northern Ireland. Um, but you don't have the tutoring going on that you do that is rife in, in places like Asia. I, I did some work at the International School of uh, the Korean International School in Hong Kong, and the, the teachers were describing how the children would be at that school all day. I mean, they'd be doing international baccalaureate type work, 
but then they'd, then the tutors would move in in the after, in the evening and then they'd be being tutored in the Korean curriculum um, into the night. I, I, somebody told me once there was a rule introduced in South Korea of um, that tutors weren't allowed to tutor children after 10 o'clock at night because of the impact that it was having on children's well-being. And then when you look at well-being, something else that they don't mention when they come back from their tours of of Shanghai and Hong Kong and South Korea is is the um, the effect on children's well-being and mental health. So when we were in Hong Kong not that long ago, there was a, a an article in their local paper just how over half of secondary school students had mental health, uh, were showing symptoms of mental health issues. Suicide is it was not uncommon um, in the schools in Hong Kong. And we're talking a primary level as well. And in places like Hong Kong, you, you, there are a lot of high buildings after you've had a, a bad day. Um, so that there's, there's, and I've, I'd read once in, in, um, in Singapore, suicide rates were going down for the general population, but were going up in young people. Now, correlation, causation and all that, but, but then there are other things at play. But this idea that um, just by focusing on the academic, we're giving children the best possible start, we're, we're, we're missing something about their, their well-being. Uh, and so we're back to if you if you haven't put if you if you if children's well-being wasn't at the heart of the curriculum, you had the wrong curriculum to begin with. So tutoring and well-being is something that I that I take that we you know we need to focus on and be aware of. And and one other thing I'd I'd like just to pick up on is um we had our conference in in March towards a, a balanced and broadly based curriculum, and we talked about sort of the breadth of that. And and Dr. Tony Yu um gave our keynote um Schiller lecture on that. Um, but one of the things that he really um, or two things that really struck me during that was one was the fact that the way you are when you're teaching in terms of it's your relationship with the children and that has a massive impact on what you're doing hmm. but also the fact he was talking about you know children who are disadvantaged and um, and the fact that it may well be that for some children what they experience in school is the majority of what they're going to learn and like you said it's different if you're from a maybe a more affluent family you know if there's no music going on in your school then you've got tutoring outside you know or like you say if you need extra academic tutoring then you've got access to all those sorts of things and the idea of i guess where that level playing field is or you know not having a bottom line is this is what we want everyone to have and other people can get more but actually to to have that breadth across your school environment so that everybody can thrive and i find that sort of an interesting thing especially as we sort of get further into sort of 2020s the the breadth is just so important we i did a um one of the books we we brought out a couple of years ago called the working class it was a collaborative book there's about 50 different contributors and, and I put a call out via the blog and via Twitter at ITL Worldwide. We are on Twitter um, just to say I want to change the narrative around children from disadvantaged backgrounds and move it away from the neoliberal model of the work, the, the feckless working class, the, the it's their own fault. They just don't try hard enough. You can be a self-made person. You just need to put the effort in. Um, it, 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 they're all all of them are fallacious comments. They, they all need challenging. But that's the narrative that's going on at the moment. And, and all the poverty porn television programs and, yeah, well, they, you know, they, they, they can't afford to pay their kids, but they've got, a, you know, Sky and a flat screen TV and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so this book tried to uh, or set about challenging those narratives. It's a big, thick book. It's about 500 pages. But I know it's, it's, it's having an influence. People are reading it and, and thinking, thinking, rethinking how they work with children from poorer backgrounds. And one of the things we've touched on is the arts. And we know there is research 
and again, the English government likes its research. There, there is specific research that says if we, you know, children who play an instrument, children who are part of an orchestra, children who play in a band, children have access to to the theatre not only does it make them more rounded and, and we can define education in a in a better way by saying we are it's a rounded and broad and balanced curriculum but it improves their exam results it improves their citizenship they're more likely to vote later on as a, a as an adult it improves their well-being it improves their connections with their with 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 home there are so many distinct direct provable benefits from access to the arts as an example to access to the arts that that we're just that is being ignored in the secondary in the sorry in the state system if we're not careful so this is again is back to the schools that are brave enough to say we're not going to get rid of the, the 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 pantomime or the nativity or the trips out or whatever because because they're important and we feel they're important and we can prove why they're important um, i mentioned in the book a, a secondary school I, I was visiting with another associate jazz ample far it's an amazing speaker talking about life of growing up in poverty and, and, and in all sorts of challenges of her childhood. Um, and we were visiting this very successful, based on all the banners it had, um, secondary school in London. And the head teacher there was saying, well, we, we don't do trips and visits in our school. That's, that's what, not what these children need. They need more time in the classroom. He said, you know, employers won't ask about trips and visits. They'll ask about the grades. And it's like, that, that's, that's not true. They will ask. Trips and visits are, are what may, any, anybody can get grades. So get your grades. We're not saying don't get your grades, but what else have you got? And I, I wrote a blog not long after that. You know, if employers really wanted to transform the education system, every time they have an interview, they just say, okay, thanks for your, thanks for sharing your, your grades and your certificates. What else have you got? And if you can't answer the what else have you got question, then I'm, I'm not interested. We, we tried to employ um, some um, apprentices to do sort of social media stuff for us in Wales. Um, a couple of years ago, I think, and we advertised and we went through the local uh, authority and did everything we were, we did everything right as far as we were aware. And, but we had, we couldn't appoint anybody. We had about five young people, but they were just, they, they had nothing. <laughs> they had no, they had their qualifications, but they didn't have any energy, any spark. And I'd much rather have energy spark and a bit of flair and even a criminal record than, than, um, I've got loads of qualifications, but I can't think for myself. I've got no no character. I've got no personality. I've got I, I ain't got nothing. So you know, encouraging schools to to have that breadth and to reassure them. It's back to the reassurance and the permission that beyond the narrowing process that education is, it's it's, it's a it's a education is a process of getting rid of those who ultimately aren't going to get to university. Beyond that. Um, employers are desperate for people with with they don't, don't care about the qualifications. I need to be able to you know read and write and do some basic. I was having a chat with a, a chat with a guy from one of the big the Ernst and Young, I think it was, and they've they're, they're, one of their policies now is you don't have to have a degree. You can have a degree, but you don't have to have a degree to work with us. He was convinced that if LinkedIn get their um, algorithm right, that actually they'll just get rid of university qualifications anyway because I'll, I'll find out what you've done there. Um, you know, this idea of every child leaving with a URL with all their evidence of what they've done on a website somewhere that's through the blockchain, it's linked to them. You can't argue with that. It's very different from, from the qualifications that you've had. Um, uh, and, and he was saying, you know, he, he just needs young, he, when he gets young recruits in uh, to work with, he said they need to be able to, um, you know, shake somebody by the hand, say hello in a positive way, um, lead a meeting. Uh, that's about it, really. He says, my 11-year-old my can do that. Everything else we can develop, we can train. So um, 
it's reassuring schools if they think that actually they 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 might drop the ball with regard to edu- with regard to qualifications um they, they won't because we know the rounded education will actually improve the education the, the qualifications anyway but they're doing that they can again sleep at night because the child is actually being learning what they need to learn in order to succeed in the world beyond the world of academic qualifications yeah and I, and i think if you can really get that across to a child isn't it is the fact that you're learning the skills that you need you're you're experiencing them um and also that I, I think a lot of the well-being and a lot of the pressure that comes with that is the fact that it's all about that at this point when you're 18 for example when your a levels come through your job is done that entire life cycle you've had for everything that you've known pivots on that one day and as soon as you get rid of that because of course like you said i'm just going to get i'm going to have a job i'm going to have work with the team i'm going to enjoy what i'm doing i'm going to learn everything that i need to learn for this environment at this time and then i'll learn some more stuff when i do the next thing and i'll develop into this and if you sort of you know if you see your schooling as that it's kind of right how can i turn up as me how can i really enjoy what i'm doing and just develop all these skills and bring it out and everything else will come to me and i'll meet the right people and we'll have those conversations and i'll get used to doing these things ah okay and then your world just opens up and i think that then has a very different stress level if you want to put it that way as well and of course that just changes the whole sense of what your view of the world is and your well-being as part of that and 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 like i said yeah it's really interesting And and i love the way you talk about you know heads but then also within the workplace and employers and all of that and i think having an organization like independent thinking where it's like you say it's not about one thing it's not about a situation it's about everything together and that and that's how the world changes isn't it is that collaboratively how do we want our young people in terms of when we're talking for education how do we want them to be growing up and what does that look like as they then become young adults Mm. and i mean calling it independent thinking it was sort of almost accidental that we ended up calling it independent thinking but it, it, it has shaped the nature of what we're doing we're not selling a system we're not telling you what to do we're just saying here here's an example here's some things to think about here's the new logo that we developed a couple of years ago is sort of an upside down we call it the tumblers like an upside down person it's because it's this idea about taking people's brains for a walk now i talked about making children's brains hurt like i do with my thunks and no philosophy for children those sorts of questions but it's also saying to teachers you know and, and to head teachers um, i'm not telling you what to do i'm not telling you how to do your job i can't i've never been a head teacher but Here's some perspective. Here's some thoughts. Here's something about robots in the classroom. Here's something about artificial intelligence in the classroom. Here's some stuff from when I was, you know, working in Hong Kong with Sagata Mitra talking about maybe the three R's need to change to the three C's of communication, comprehension, and computation. Here's some thoughts about the brain. Here's, and, and, and encouraging them to, all the people that we work with, to, 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 to think for themselves and make their own decisions as practitioners and and this is why i worry about some of the focus on the research not against research at all but there's an underlying narrative that i see when it's a it has to be what the research says the evidence informed practice an underlying narrative that says teachers have to do what somebody else tells them to do because that somebody else is cleverer than them has got it sorted and i've 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 worried about this sort of deprofessionalizing of teachers by the narrative that, that has been going on for a while because as soon as you and, and then delivering from a script um and delivering f- from a certain series of codes and movements because as soon as you go there you if you're delivering from a script you ultimately only need the script 
So then you're into the you know the robots in the classroom, the artificial intelligence, the 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 the, the bots, and um, we're there anyway. I mean those things those things exist, but it is sort of moving in that direction. And I'm, I, I, I you can only really say what worked past tense. You can't say this will work for you because it because because it worked for me in my classroom in this part of the world doesn't mean to say it's definitely going to work for you. And it might do, it might work better than some of the things you were doing, but there's no guarantees. Um, my fa- one of my favourite education books is by Ger Biesta or Vista, um, the Dutch um, education academic, I suppose, and he talks about the beautiful risk of education, and he says education is it is this risk, it is this sense of I don't know if it's going to work, it's not a guaranteed thing, but it that's what makes it beautiful. This idea I'm going to try it and see what happens, I'm going to iterate, I'm going to, and 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 I've always talked to, to teachers about you know your classroom is a laboratory. So just experiment and experiments can't go wrong. You might not get the result you wanted, but you're going to get some sort of result. And don't don't do things to the children and the young people. Do things with them. Mm-hmm. So so you tell we'll we'll try it this way today and just see how you feel. See whether you think that worked. Did did it work? Did it not work? So you're constantly involving them in the experimental laboratory of learning that is your classroom. And they are they are you know they're the scientists like you are the scientist. Um, and there, there's a, a guy, a guy um, his name will come back to me, he writes about the environment. And he, he was saying, and he's getting towards the end of his life now, I think. And he was talking about, he always saw himself as a scientist because he took the science and applied the science, but actually he realizes now he's an inventor. That it's actually, you take the science and take the facts and take the ideas and then you play with them and you see what happens, you see what comes up. And this idea about the teacher is the inventor. I'd much rather have teacher as an inventor rather than teacher as the 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 applier of somebody else's science. Absolutely, and I think the big thing that comes across is that the way you talk about all of these things is exciting. You know, I I want to go to that school. I want to have those conversations. I want to be part of that culture. And as soon as you start talking about you know the, the, almost the teaching by numbers and and the the robotic idea of those things, you start to get that. Oh yeah, I I've been there i can remember that i can i i you know and and that's very black and white to me in terms of yes that's the one i want and that one i can i'm already starting to think oh is it sunday night i'm going to be going tomorrow morning you know which i think anyone who's got kids and um yeah. in school can sort of, sort of relate to as, as well as, as obviously staff and um and i think that's uh that i think so it's all about the emotion and it's and it's also all about now you know you sort of saying you know the success comes um and the data-driven idea of you know what's working, what's not working. I think if you bring it all down into you know this child was smiling, happy, excited today about this particular thing, then that's a win. That's what we're about. That's what everything needs to be. And you can only do a whole succession of those. And if you manage to do that day in day out, of course, with your expertise and your structures and your ideas of what you're trying to create, yeah. then over the course of this child's term year primary school whole academic life you know it's going to be very positive yeah. and successful from that point of view and that's like I say the rest of it takes care of itself you know yeah. like i said you allow that arrow to go and we'll see where it finishes at the end but you know the journey's in the right pace when i was teaching french i used to feel some of my you know like my bottom set kids they, was, they, they didn't need french they weren't going to get french there was no point there was no relevance and and what I used to do, especially those those with struggling with special needs with regard to their under, you know, the English language, let alone picking up a foreign language. Um, so I, as far as I was concerned, my goal was to make sure they didn't leave feeling worse about themselves. And when they came in, that they actually went out feeling positive about sitting in a classroom, about learning, about being in school by 
by having fun, by having a laugh. Yeah, we, we I tried to work them as hard as I possibly could. But if it was, they left feeling more stupid than when they came in because I was purely focused on getting my French results up, um, then I would I would not be able to sleep at night. Um, so yeah, so with my bottom set kids, it was it was just to make sure that they weren't turned off school. And with my top set kids, it was making sure I kept out of their way long enough for them to get the A grades they were going to get anyway. And then and, and a bit of everything in between. So it was the CD borderlines. They were the most fun. They're the ones you could actually do, do um, have a lot more fun with, I suppose. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 what do we want school to do? And what do we want children to walk away from it? Not only daily, but like you say, it sort of augments, it builds. So at the end of it, they look back and go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm this person because of those experiences. And I'm happy with that. Yeah. Um, well, Ian, thank you so much for being with us today. I just think these conversations and the sharing that the reality of these things and what is possible. And I love the fact that you mentioned, you know, it's not easy, you know, you have to be brave. There's a, a certain fear factor in terms of, of stepping out um, into this world. But I think, you know, like I said, if you can sleep at night, and you know, it's right, then it is the right thing to do. And, and understanding how you can navigate that through the sorts of work you're, you're doing is brilliant. And that's what NAPE is really about. You know, it's a, it's a non political charity that's trying to sort of have these conversations expose all of these things that are happening to support anybody that's in involved in education so let's just finish up again with with that website which i know has got all the books and all the resources and webinars and stuff that you've talked about that people can explore so yeah in well on twitter we're at itl worldwide and it's usually me tweeting not exclusively but usually me tweeting we tweet on all sorts of bits and pieces so follow us on there um and then independentthinking.co.uk or com um you can subscribe uh, you'll be the first to hear of various offers and new books coming out and webinars you'll be first in the queue for some of the webinars that we do whether they're free ones or paid for ones or conferences and, and events in the real world um that, that so that'll, that'll be exciting to get back doing that again and also apart from the profiles of the different associates on the website and the different topics we cover there's under the resources there's loads of free stuff whether it's video recordings or um, uh, links or thunks are there or blogs. There's all sorts of free stuff just to, um, uh, just, just to help, just to do our bit really to help keep, keep things going. Fantastic. Ian, thank you so much again. It's, uh, it's been an inspiring and a really thought-provoking conversation and yeah, more of it to come hopefully. Thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks very much.